Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the World Gamers. Our usual co-host Michael Edgley takes the week off over there at the Asian Cup in Qatar. First edition news shortly with Willem van Denderen. But first up, the Asian Cup continues apace in Qatar. But this past week has seen the local spotlight on a story that broke just after last week's podcast dropped. And I speak of the Australian Professional Leagues where staff were called together after the first A-Leagues Unite round in Sydney, expecting congratulations only for many to get the brutal news that they no longer had a job because of what appears to be the parlous state of the league's finances again to give us an update on this evolving story and how we can expect it to play out we'll talk to the guardian and espn's joey lynch and yes we will take a look at the soccer's final group match and their progression into the deeper stages of the tournament then less than a week ago Chief Executive of the English Premier League, Richard Masters, updated the Culture, Media and Sports Committee at the UK Parliament on the latest on a financial agreement between the top of the English football pyramid. And he also announced at the same time a story that does dovetail into all of this, the hearing into Manchester City's alleged breaches of financial rules, but puzzlingly could not reveal the date. Uh, At about the same time, Everton also who are already appealing against the 10-point deduction for a previous charge, and Nottingham Forest were charged for breaching league profit and sustainability rules on Monday. To try and get to the bottom of all of this and how it aligns, we'll talk to Henry Winter from The Times. Derek, it's an arcane, complex story. You listen to podcasts, read stories, and you're looking at evolving, rolling three-year cycles and what's allowed to be written off and what's not allowed to be written off, where you can overspend and where you can't. It's a tricky story to get your head around. Yeah, that's right, Rob. And look, I was just reflecting on both of those stories from your headlines there. You know, on the one hand, you've got the domestic league over here who don't have $2 to rub together to run even the most basic of organisations for a a domestic senior uh, level programme. And then on the other hand, you've got the the cash, uh, you know, the, the cash from Manchester City, the spending spree from Nottingham Forest that seems to be coming unstuck, and obviously Everton's attempts to uh, to compete with the uh, the best in the league too. So, yeah, there's lots to think about between those stories. Uh, uh, the, the Premier League one is a really knotty problem, and I look forward to unpicking that a bit with Henry a little later in the show. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Willem, um, over there in the Netherlands, mate, uh, chilly as we speak. Uh, are we seeing any snow outside, mate? Uh, we've had a good degree of snow over the past week, which I'm still finding sort of novel and not too not too uh, frustrating. But I think, yeah, by by local reports, we've got another month of you know really sort of cold stuff, and then by March it uh, it should start to come good, but not looking so uh, not looking so sunny on the domestic front. Robber really sort of tough week. Um, that final restructure you mentioned has seen 50% of the APL's uh, marketing, content, product, and government relations departments cut, while. $40 million content arm Keep Up has had the plug pulled. The APL took control of the domestic game in December 2020 and received $140 million from private equity firm Silver Lake for a 33% stake in the company 12 months later. Now, the big question is where has that money gone? League integrity was also questioned this week after Perth Glory stated the APL had instructed 
them to let Salim Khalifi, a uh, Tunisian winger who we know well on this program, Robin, always mm. kept a, a close eye on. Uh, they instructed, was the term that the glory used uh, them to let him leave the club on loan. That would apparently help the financial state of the club as the APL looked to find the glory a new owner. Now, the most um, sort of ghastly part of this, Rob, I guess, is that Less than, or sort of eight days ago now, Nick Garcia trumpeted the success of, of Unite Round uh, with the man who we're going to speak to in a moment, Joey Lynch. These axings then came Monday morning Australian time, and as it stands, we're still yet to hear from the current A-Leagues Commissioner or Stephen Conroy, who we've been um, asking sort of pretty, um, you know, not forcefully, but p- persistently to, to get on the program. And that's not, that's, that's a pretty common refrain around football media circles as well. We just want to hear from, uh, from this man or Garcia at some point. The positive... Whatever does go forward is they've got two times $25 million injections to come through the Auckland and probably the, the Canberra licence, but this current lot, Rob, have unfortunately proven themselves incapable over a three-year period now. So what happens from here? Is it going to be a hybrid coming together between the APL and, and Football Australia? That seems logical, but in reality, these things don't play out that way. I mean, two hands trying to talk together, that doesn't always seem to come together. So just a yeah, very sort of disheartening week and lots of our uh, colleagues and people that we know will uh, will be looking for employment, which is, you know, the worst thing of all. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's shocking. And um, and Derek and I work in our, our day jobs um, in, in the media and, um, and we're constantly seeking new sources of revenue for uh, for high profile productions and we know what it takes to to get a, a production to air um, even um, with uh, with um, prestige uh, credible media partners uh, to think that you would have a hundred and forty million dollar cash injection and then and pretty much appear to, to create a media outlet of your own which as much as we were all and have consistently complained about the lack of football coverage uh, across the mainstream newsprint media and uh, and in various media outlets in this country. But to solve that problem by creating your own and then throwing uh, tens of millions of dollars at it only to, to waste that money when it, uh, it, first of all, isn't fit for, for purpose and then you've got to fix it and then just sent uh, uh, a bunch of really good people, quality people uh, who, who work for you uh, uh, to the um, to the wolves without a job. It's it's just mind boggling. You know, you're on the other side of the world. You are in a country that that is passionate about football, but you know, as a, as a rising person in the media, to to read that. $140 million cash injection has been effectively pissed up against the wall is reprehensible. Yeah, it is. And I think the first inkling of issue came pretty early when we heard that Keep Up was costing $30 million. That is a huge chunk of that cheese, if you like. And then the initial rollout of what it was was really diabolical. If you remember, they went, they went broad church with it and covered every European league mm. and even the sort of your absolute basics such as your app in terms of live scores results um was was behind the times and and unworkable so um that that was problematic they then narrowed it down and brought some you know proper content people on board to write some australian pieces and by the end it was it looked pretty good on the on the on the website robin it was sort of targeted and focused and um and committed to australian football but so much of that initial reputation had been staked by its sort of unrolling if you like when it was just nowhere near ready so i think when people were hearing that that was you know costing that amount of money for pretty much zero return early doors that was problematic and then 
if you recall, Danny Townsend also used to speak about the TV studio that they were going to build in, in yeah. Sydney and that was going to be their own sort of production house. I wonder where that is, um, i.e. I don't think it's anywhere. Um, so, yeah, no, that is, uh, that is a, a major, major bungle and a major disappointment, Rob. Yeah, it is. It's sad, really, and um, and the, and for sure, the, the people who are at the top end of it, um, well, we're not hearing that they've lost their jobs, and um, you know, inevitably, it's the way of these things. Uh, there's often golden handshakes and uh, and six big six figure pay packets uh, are being uh, paid to the people who made the decisions. So it's the uh, it's the little people who are either veterans in the industry as as, as uh, senior journalists or, or rising stars in the industry who uh, um, who, who might be out of the industry if they can't find another job in this pretty thin environment. We'll jump further uh, to Joey about this shortly, but let's have a look at the Socceroos. They have advanced to the knockout stage of the Asian Cup with a game to spare, keeping a second consecutive clean sheet to defeat Syria 1-0. But creative concern remains. Jackson Irvine's second goal of the tournament was the side's only registered shot on target. Jones. Boyle, that's better. Gets rid of two defenders. Martin Boyle. And still going, here's Jackson Irvine, it's there for Australia, Jackson Irvine, two goals in two games at the Asian Cup Finals, it was Martin Boyle who made it, and then Jackson Irvine's perseverance ensured that the ball trickled over the line, and all that frustration is lifted for Australia. Australia's final group came comes on Tuesday against Uzbekistan, who could still top the group if they beat the Socceroos. Uh, they've set themselves up nicely with a 3-0 win over India. And Rob, this was in many ways a carbon copy of our India game. Not super tested defensively, although there were a couple more hairy moments than against India, but going forward, really struggling to create chances the other way. And then the Irvine goal on you know, sort of did release a little bit of the tension and they, they saw it out uh, well enough. Selection-wise, Really sort of hot debate right through the Australian football community at the minute. We've said that Arnie's built so much depth, but he seems um, to maybe not have a, a clear, or maybe, let me put it this way, maybe the players haven't taken the t- decisions out of his hands by performing really, really well. Um, he tried to play Boss and Bayich on the left. Not sure that was maximised. McGree uh, again off the bench as opposed to starting ahead of Metcalf. I think, um, you know, we're not privy to the state of Riley's fitness coming off a sort of medium-term foot injury, but I think most people would prefer to see McGree uh, as the tournament goes on. Uh, And the news off the back of that uh, Syria match that Mitch Duke is going to miss with a hamstring. Mitch, just tireless workhorse, again, uh, through the first two games, but probably hasn't provided or been given the opportunity. So you would think Bruno Fornaroli would come in for his first uh, Socceroos start. I tend to be more positive about things than negative. I think they'll be looking to play uh, the seven games as opposed to peaking at the right time now, Rob, and with South Korea and Japan, who I'll speak about in a minute, uh, not shooting the lights out, uh, I don't think there's uh, there's time for stress. Oh, no. Well, I mean, you know, there are plenty of examples littered over men's and women's tournaments where uh, uh, the... Um the, the eventual winner starts out poorly. Most recently, of course, in Qatar, Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia. So, uh, so if you if you work your way into the tournament, um, Germany over the many many years, the men's side were famous for for working their way into tournaments. So uh, we'll we'll judge this one at the end. Iraq have thrown the biggest banner into the works thus far. They defeated Japan two one to advance to the second round. Uh, like Australia, uh, have a game in hand. So the advanced teams heading into the final group stage match. Australia, Iraq, Qatar, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. But I want to talk about Iraq. They are the uh, the 2007 champions, a famous 
uh, famous sort of storied success. They set up their win uh, through a first-half double to Ayman Hussein uh, before holding up defensively and conceded really only at the death. This was a, a pretty comfortable 2-1 uh, win. Would you believe that that is Japan's first Asian Cup group stage loss since 1988, Rob, when they were on debut and lost all three since then, haven't dropped uh, haven't dropped all three until uh, the week just gone. They'll still get through. They play Indonesia on Wednesday. South Korea also need to uh, to take it to the third match day. Their two-all draw with Jordan, which they really pulled out of the fire, uh, means they need to beat Malaysia uh, to guarantee their progression. Um, but there's been storylines um, plenty. Edge isn't with us for this one, but he, uh, he went and saw Hong Kong just about take a point off Iran. Tajikistan, for a side who haven't scored a goal and have lost both matches have been really, really good and really made Qatar uh, work for their uh, for their 1-0 win, considering that Qatar had uh, breezed their uh, their opener against Lebanon. So I've given you a lot to sort of pick through there, Rob, but what has uh, has stood out to you from a whole-of-tournament perspective aside from Australia through the uh, the second match day? Yeah, I, I guess the um, the fact that Australia have, have got two results in a scratchy start is good. Uh, Syria are uh, always respectable in any tournament, have given us plenty of trouble over the years. So uh, as a, an observer, I'm happy that... Um, that We've been able to pull things together. Mitch Duke, um, unfortunate for him and for Australia that he's injured, but uh, injuries always give opportunities for others. And, and I'm, I'm just hoping that Bruno Fornaroli gets some proper game time. So uh, I think um, you know the, the the next game that um, that be played tomorrow night, as we record, uh, is, is one that I'll be fascinated to watch. Um, it's just great to see some of the, um, the 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 countries that that are in some of the more. Um, uh, challenging parts of the world. Iraq, uh, you know, it doesn't get more difficult uh, to, to live uh, in, in a, um, the Middle East in, in certain countries, or it does in some parts of the Middle East, of course. Iraq's not a hotbed as it has been in the past, and and, um, and lesser so than, than some other parts. Uh, I speak, of course, of Israel and Gaza, but uh, but it's never easy in Iraq. And so for, for them to, to knock off Japan, who, uh, uh, you know, we talked to Scott McIntyre, uh, as expected, favourites to, to just romp their way through, uh, is, is a fantastic result and then other results like Palestine getting a one-all uh, result against uh, the UAE so um, and then the Minos of course Vietnam and, and Indonesia Indonesia getting a one-nil result against the 10-man Vietnam so you know it's been a great tournament so far um, I'm enjoying it and uh, and hopefully uh, from a, an Australian point of view um, you know we keep going and, uh, and you know gets the pointy and um, in good form. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. There is still time to book your trip to Tashkent to see the Matildas in their first leg of their Olympic qualifier against Uzbekistan. You can't bank on results in football, but you can bank on the Green and Gold Army's quality, cultural experiences, top hospitality, and I've seen on the website a couple of meals at some of the finest Central Asian restaurants already booked in. Uh, so make sure you do head off to uh and if you do have the time, you will not be disappointed. The English Women's Super League is back. Caitlin Ford took just nine minutes to open the scoring for Arsenal in a 2-1 win over Everton, for whom Claire Wheeler played 90 minutes. Mary Fowler came off the bench for the final 30 as Man City smashed uh, Liverpool 5-1. Portig and Micah was uh, in goal. While in London, Katrina Gorry and Charlotte Grant, who are absolute best mates if you go off their social media, uh, were on opposing sides for their new sides as West Ham defeated Tottenham 4-3. Uh, Gory on debut, Grant off the bench. And to close, Rob, good luck to Tom Glover, uh, who's been a, a mainstay in goal for Middlesbrough of late. Uh, they this week head to Chelsea for the second leg of their League Cup semi-final with a 1-0 aggregate uh, lead in hand. 
Yeah, and um, surprising, he, he, he still um, doesn't get a call up um, for, for only the way that he's going. Tom Glover is uh, doing a, a brilliant job for, for Middlesbrough. Well done, Willem. Okay, um, we're going to talk to Joey Lynch after the break. Uh, would like to be just talking to him about the uh, the Asian uh, Cup uh, and uh, and some more of the the detail. Well, we will talk to him about it, but uh, we're going to discuss the uh, the story of the past week, the Australian Professional Leagues, the one forty million, where it's gone, how it was wasted, the staff that have been sacked from keep up um, and and what we should expect from the domestic competition in the short to medium term as they they rebuild and uh, and why we're not hearing from anybody at uh, at head office about it that's Joey Lynch next on box to box box to box can you believe it for chemist warehouse great savings every day and Hoyt's herbs and spices changing the mood of food and this could be the most crucial goal of all Yes, this is Box to Box, and we'd expected, as we've done over the last few weeks, to continue our uh, coverage of the the Asian Cup from Qatar, but uh, how could we ignore the story that's emerged out of the A-Leagues with the Australian Professional Leagues with uh, half of the staff sacked in the past week. This story just breaking after we dropped the podcast last week. So we'll have a chat about the Asian Cup, of course, but uh, we do need to do a a uh, bit of a deep dive into what's happening and try to make some sense of it. And obviously, we go to one of the leading voices in football in this country to discuss that from The Guardian and ESPN and many other excellent publications. Joey Lynch, how are you, Joey? I'm going all right, guys. It's not been a good time for Australian football, but I'm going all right. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, the first, uh, I think some of us got wind of this, uh, but seemed like our old mate, um, Ray Gatt, who, who doesn't write uh, these days, but uh, he's one of the uh, the fastest gun in the West when it comes to Twitter. Um, uh, he was probably one of the early ones to, go, to, to get a leak that uh, – uh, this story was breaking and then Aaron Smith covered it um, across the, the weekend in the News Limited newspaper. So to recap the headline for those who haven't read it, um, it's it's brutal. Uh, poor governance, crazy spending habits, handouts to clubs and a last-ditch broadcast deal that are blamed for the Australian Professional League's downfall that saw the A-League owners brutally axe half of its workforce this week as questions mount as to what happened to the $140 million cash injection received just two years ago. So, Joey, you and I were chatting about this off-air as we were preparing and try to to, to, to uh, get to the point as, and, and analyse it as best we could. So the first question that I have is, is who is responsible for the mess? And if you're going to look into your crystal ball, uh, how, what do you see as the short to medium-term future for the game, the domestic game in this country? Well, I mean, to examine, like when you examine something like this, this has happened after the results of a three-year review conducted by the APL. It's been basically just over three years since the Australian Professional Leagues took over the full writing of the league after its unbundling from Football Australia. And I mean, even before this review seemingly finished, there had been a lot of whispers that jobs were going to be cut. It felt like for months, every time you'd speak to someone um, higher up in the game, they'd be talking about cuts coming. You weren't quite sure of the extent. And I think a lot of people were surprised when it turned out to be 50% of the workforce that ended up being cut. Um, they came in on Monday afternoon. I've, I was told by some people after Unite Round, expecting to be thanked for Unite Round, and then were told that job cuts um, were coming. But seemingly the result of the review was that the direction of the league, its strategy for the first three years wasn't working 
um, the organization couldn't sustain that strategy and that it had to pivot and it had to move away from that and that in doing so, it had to stage massive job cuts. Um, now, you can't swing that in any way as being a good thing. If you're cutting 50% of your workforce, it's because your strategy has failed and you need to pivot away from it for the good of the organization. And with matters such as this, uh, when it's a strategic failure needing a new direction for the business, inevitably, when you're asking about whose fault it is, manage a strategy such as that, it comes down to the executive staff and the board of directors like it would at any company, especially given that the APL is not a not-for-profit, it's a private for-profit company that has obviously seen significant losses and has had to restructure the organization um, to survive and to reconfigure itself. Inevitably, that is the responsibility and the buck stops with the board directors and the executive who have undergone some significant change in recent months. And to be honest, I don't think it's a surprise that this review has been conducted and a change in strategy and direction has taken place after we've got a new independent chair of the board and new members of the executive come in in late 2023. So when do we expect to hear from them? I mean, Nick Garcia is the is the spokesperson. Um, why are we not seeing him front the media and and explaining what's happened and and try to to put a some form of face on it. Are they still gun shy from the Danny Townsend experience after the grand final decision? I can't give you an accurate surmising of why the the reasoning behind them not coming out. I, I could just say you know it's certainly not for want of trying amongst me and a few of our colleagues. Pretty much as soon as this happens, numerous requests were being sent in to speak to specifically Stephen Conroy as the chair of the board um, that is of an organization that has just made cuts to approximately half of its workforce. It would behoove him to speak on this regard or even Nick Garcia. Those requests have been going in. We are yet to hear um, back from anybody. I understand we're recording this on a Monday afternoon, I understand that there were some meetings this afternoon to determine the next steps in communication. So maybe by the time this goes out, um, that will have changed. But um, I'm not sure why we haven't heard from uh, anybody in the APL. I can't profess to know their communication strategy. I would have thought it would be best to get ahead of this or at least once the initial reactions came out, you spoke about the news limited coverage, my piece came out in the ESPN last week, to try to get out there and at least put forward your narrative and try to gain control of the narrative. I would have thought that would be for the best, but we haven't yet. And I, I profess I would have thought that would be the right call, but who knows what the communication strategy is. So let's just assume that they're, they're going to stick to their knitting, um, keep up the website sadly um, it's still up um, but it's not keeping up um, it's it's frozen in time um, uh, to the, uh, the the date that it was announced it's almost like a clock that was smashed on the bottom of the Titanic you go there and that's the the content that you're seeing from six days ago uh, so let's hope that they they focus what money there is within the coffers uh, the 50 million coming in with the two new licenses um, there's an imminent um, deal uh, for the, uh, the the renewal of the A-League rights across the men and women. And when I say imminent, I mean we're talking about within the next 12 months to two years, we, we should see an, an additional cash injection. The questions then remain, do 10 Paramount 
pull the trigger on what we hear is a, a, a get out clause, an early get out clause. And if they don't, and they're negotiating with Football Australia, and you know anyone who's listening to this podcast knows football enough in this country to know that we're talking about two separate organisations between the APL and Football Australia. But the Football Australia um, take a, a lucrative a rights offer for the Socceroos and Matildas with 10 Paramount to give them a carrot and an incentive to stick with the domestic game? Well, that's going to be a really interesting question, I think, because you are right that nominally the A-League's uh, broadcasting deal extends for a few more years, but Channel 10 and Paramount does have that option um, within the contract. And that's going to be really interesting because what Football Australia does with their rights in a large regard, this is my personal opinion, um, this next bit that I'll be saying, I think is going to dictate a lot of the APL's options, so to speak, because in the events that Football Australia depart Channel 10 and Paramount and take Socceroos, Matildas, Australia Cup, National Second Tier rights to a, another organisation, that would leave the A-Leagues as Paramounts. Effectively, it's only football option. They also have the FA Cup, but that's very um, irregular. Irregular. You can't guarantee which teams are going to be available in that FA Cup. Um, and the FA Cup, unfortunately, has lost some of its cachet in recent years. That would leave the A-Leagues in a position wherein it, it would have to basically be the lone footballing uh, item bringing people to Paramount. And I'm not sure whether or not it's in a position right now uh, to do that. The APL will basically say that their priority is to go somewhere and find someone who is a wanting partner with the A-Leagues that will want to work and promote them. The question would be in that scenario, it, will Channel 10 see them as that kind of thing? And I think we can't know this for a number of time now. Channel 10 Sorry, sorry, the APL haven't taken anything out to market yet. They're not on the market right now. They're still fully committed to Channel 10 and Paramount. It's Football Australia that are presently in market with their um, rights, the, the Matildas, Socceroos, NST and uh, Australia Cup. And in my estimation, they'll have likely been looking at these past few years of this broadcasting deal with Channel 10 Paramount and they'll have a number of lessons that they'll have taken from that, I think, as well as uh, the success, the unabashed success that the Women's World Cup had on Channel 7, the records ratings, pretty much it's the Matildas and Kathy Freeman as the highest rating things of all time on Australian television. Um, those will be not just about dollar fees, but also oh, about um, Contra and about the reach that you can get with a broadcasting partner. Because when you look at, once again, I'm, this is me leaning back now into my own opinion and my own analysis. When you look at someone like Nine who have Stan, but they also have newspapers, you look at Channel 7 and they've got their own media ties and they've also got, um, they're a network, they're not a channel, so ch they can make calls around the country on the 7 network. Uh, even Channel 7 has a history of uh, partnering with Optus Sport to deliver on products as we have seen. That offers maybe a different value proposition than Channel 10, which is just Channel 10 and Paramount+. Plus. So all of these different things are going to play into it because it's not just the rights themselves that you've got to think about here. When uh, Football Australia going out and trying to pick a partner, 
They also are thinking about audience reach, not only for the eyeballs that that brings onto the Matildas and the Socceroos, that reach, they can also go out to sponsors then and say, we're charging you X amount more because we will bring in Y number of viewers on this network compared to the other one. So it's a very complicated process, but it's going to have a lot of repercussions for all of Australian football. Joey, such a difficult juncture again and some unfortunate symmetry with the Socceroos being at a major tournament in Qatar while the domestic game suffers such a, a horrible blow after uh, December 2022, which we'll never forget. To those Socceroos, two trains of thought uh, running as we look forward to Uzbekistan. Two wins, two clean sheets, no injuries, although I wrote that before the Mitch Duke uh, news came through. Uh, and building into what they will hope will be a long seven-game tournament or creative woes, lack of spark, toughest opponents still to come. Uh, and that second school is probably the loudest. Both deserve a degree of respect. Where do we find you uh, as we look forward to Uzbekistan on Tuesday? It's it's very in, it's it's very difficult to figure these things <laughs> out, to be honest, because uh, like you look at them, well, it, 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 with, with something like this, it's I guess you sort of have to acknowledge that multiple things can be true at once. It's one of my favourite just fallback uh, fence-sitting phrases. Um, It's incredibly difficult to break down low blocks in Asian competition like this. We're seeing that not just with the Australians, we're seeing it with a lot of the heavy hitters at this tournament, Japan, Saudi Arabia, um, Korea, Iran at times. They've all struggled to break down sides that are not as talented as they are, but are well-organised, determined and disciplined. So it's not just an Australian problem. And indeed, if one looks out at a more global trend across the entire planet, this is, you know, the Socceroos are hardly Robinson Caruso when it comes to struggling as the ball-dominant side trying to break down an embedded defence. Now, you can acknowledge that and recognise that as reality, while still wanting improvements from the Socceroos, wanting to see them do a little bit more in possession to try to open up sides. You can pinpoint areas that you want to see improvement, the things such as Australia really seeming to be reliant on getting the ball down the flanks and whipping it in rather than trying to unlock sides through the middle of the park. The lack of a real um, game-breaking number 10 uh, in that squad and all of that sort of stuff implies the midfield composition. Does a midfield composition, we've seen uh, a starting lineup of Bacchus, Metcalf and Irvine and also O'Neill, um, Metcalf and Irvine. Is that midfield competi- composition, the attributes of those three players, are they aligned to best break down Um, embedded defences, or would other players with different skill sets help that better? Of course, Graham Arnold is in a uh, difficult position in that, and that one of the best players for unlocking a defence would have been Maslowongo, but he retired on the eve of the tournament. Then you've got Aiden Hrustic, who is um, in the club wilderness with Hellas Verona. Dennis Jonro is battling persistent injury problems with Chalouse. So, you know, again, multiple things can be true at once. Arnie's not yep. dealing with a full hand here. Um, but when you look at the tournament as a whole, I think you can simultaneously say that Australia could be playing a lot better but they are still one of these sides that you would not be surprised to go on a run and lift the Asian Cup, particularly when you see 
how Japan looked mortal, the Koreans look mortal, Iran look mortal, Saudi Arabia look mortal, Qatar look mortal. There is no side at this Asian Cup that has stood up and said, we are the best. You, We are prohibitive favourites. Um, so yeah, it, it's really, it's confusing, to be honest. I mean, I'm headed over to Doha for the uh, knockout. So maybe when I'm on the ground, I'll get my head around it a little bit more rather than trying to figure out what's going on at three in the morning like we're currently trying to get through watching all these games. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better that you're confused, Joey, as I try to work it out because I've got no idea half the time. And you say that two things can be true at once. It feels like Arnie's built that depth and he's got more options than he's ever had, but then he doesn't have uh, the option through the centre of the park. I want to ask your opinion on what is going on on the left-hand side. He probably does have a full there in Bayich, Boss and Goodwin, but it seems that he might have gone and tied himself in a knot with starting Boss forward of Bayich with Goodwin on the bench. Maybe that's just early tournament, you know, sussing things out and trying different combinations. Having said that, he's had those three gents in camp for, you know, the last 12 months at least since Boss came in uh, sort of midway through. 20 or you know early 2023 so that seemed like an interesting thing to to try out in a mm. tournament how do you see that playing out going forward on the left hand side well it's interesting i did ask uh graham arnold about where he sees geordie boss um in his side and arnold um, spoke about the various positions that um boss could play um and you know he can play as a left wing back he can play as a left back he can play as a left winger but he did also note um, during his answer, the importance that he saw of Aziz Bayic coaching him and giving him advice and helping him in that game uh, against the Syrians, which to my mind and my analysis, and it could very well be wrong, but this is the game wherein we have to read into words and try to figure out what's going on in people's heads with very little to go off. In my mind, that could potentially indicate that uh, Graham Arnold in a major tournament when he looks at Craig Goodwin as his bench and Geordie Boss, maybe he thinks that Geordie Boss isn't quite at the point yet where he wants to um, have him put in a real, leave him on an island, so to speak, whether that be at left back, well, apparently at left back, um, regardless of your views on whether you can be left on an island at left back that might be graham arnold's thinking um which is why we've seen geordie boss deployed higher up the pitch now that does open the question is the sum total of geordie boss at left wing uh, as his bait uh, at left back greater than the sum total that would be produced by having geordie boss at craig good uh, left back craig goodwin on the wing cassini yangi on the wing I would be inclined to think that maybe uh, Jordy Boss at left back with somebody further up the pitch at him, the sum total of those parts might be greater than the Bayich and Boss combination. And that is not to disparage as is Bayich. He's been a fantastic Socceroos. He's a good player. It's just these margin calls that one has to make and it depends entirely upon um, your perspective. And to be honest, that calculation might change as we get forward and we play better sides that are going to have more of the ball and are going to come more at the Socceroos. Um, but that's a very interesting going one going forward. And we haven't even touched on the right-back situation. Gethin Jones has started two games, hasn't quite impressed yet. Does he bring in Lewis Miller or Nate Atkinson on that right side as well? That looks a very conservative selection at right-back. And I wonder if, Joey, maybe that is... Um, I mean, we see him tucking in next to the two centre-halves and maybe that allows him to be a little bit more playful and attacking on the left. I think Jones has been, yeah, okay. They haven't been overly tested defensively, but yeah, I just see that. There's been some criticism of Jones. I just see it as a very conservative selection with 
um, with you know quite aggressive having Boss up front on the left. But back to you, Rob. Yep, excellent. Well, brilliant analysis as always, Joey. Um, maybe uh, when you hit the deck in uh, in Qatar, mate, we'll we'll get you back on to, to talk about the uh, the knockout stages um, as as we record, as you said, uh, on Monday evening our time, twenty four hours out from the uh, the Socceroos final uh, group match against Uzbekistan. Who you know they they shouldn't necessarily need to win, but they're going to need to get a point out of this to guarantee themselves uh, mm. uh, progression. So it's going to be an interesting match to, tomorrow night our time. Safe travelling, Joey. Um, and uh, we'll watch both stories with interest, mate. All right. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. Okay, stick around after the break. Henry Winter, we're going to talk about the uh, the ongoing investigations into Everton and, and Forrest and uh, and just find out what the latest is with these uh, mysterious hearings that we know are about to take place, but we don't know the date of uh, Manchester City. That's next on box to box Hey, Willem, um, there's no chemist warehouse over there in Amsterdam or, um, or other parts of, of the Netherlands, is there? Do you ever see big no, farms? No, there's there? not, and I'm, I'm starting to run to run dry, Rob, on some of the essentials. Oh, well, ma'am, I might send you a care package of fragrances because right now there's Kylie Minogue, darling. I don't think you'd be wearing that. Uh, unless no, you're send it over, send it over. Yeah, pick some gifts. Yeah. 75 mil eau de parfum for twenty nine ninety nine. Burberry London for women, 100ml Eau de Parfum for $59.99. I think those are good deals. And 100%, know, uh, yeah. Prices like that. Excellent. While you're at Chemist Warehouse, you can save on big brand vitamins too, Derek. Microgenics Vitamin D3 1000, international units 200 capsules. Not a lot of sunlight these days uh, in, uh, in parts of Australia. Just $12.99. Get a good deal in case you're not getting out in the sun for your vitamin D. I'm oh, always on the vitamin D, Rob, and that sounds like a great deal, so I'll be straight down there, ka-ching. Absolutely, and Mycodrenics immune support. Still, I notice there's a fair bit of COVID going around these days, so keep your immunity up, 120 capsules for just 14.29. Chemist Warehouse, great savings every day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box the box. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we talk about the the, fin- the parlous financial state of football, uh, domestic football, club football in in this country. One hundred and forty million dollar cash injection. It's a drop in the ocean when you talk about international football. But meanwhile, we're talking about clubs that are overspending. Well, that amount in in the course of uh, of one year, um, and um, and there's a uh, a real intense discussion going on around some of the the investigations, some of the hearings that are taking place with the clubs that we, we read about in recent times, uh, uh, and and some of the politics around this. Um, and uh, uh, it was highlighted in the past week when uh, the Chief Executive of the Premier League, Richard Masters, updated the Culture, Media and Sport Committee at the UK Parliament on the latest on the financial agreement between the top tier of English football and the rest of the pyramid. At the very same time, he announced that a date has been set for the hearing into Manchester City's alleged breaches of financial rules, but wouldn't reveal the date. And then days later, Everton Forrester are charged. Um, as we welcome Henry Witter from The Times to the show, Henry, it's it's a very complex story to get your head around. And and the, the cynic in me um, continues to wonder, I know we've asked you this question before, as to you know whether... Uh, Part of the reason for the, the the resumed focus on on these issues is that the, uh, the 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 competition itself does not want to to have government intervention um, o- over the top of them. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the whole issue of the independent regulator, which was brought in pretty much on the back of the, the European Super League plotters and the concern about the sort of financial disparity between the elite clubs and down the pyramid. I mean, you know, we've got clubs who, well, are going well, at risk of going out of of existence and they are and covid has highlighted this that they are so much they've almost become the sort of the local church for the local community they are the sort of you know the beacon in difficult times so there is this huge desire to protect clubs an independent regulator would sort of stand up for them so the premier league clearly didn't want that they want you know, a pure capitalist setting and for for rich owners around the world to sort of run English football and almost run down the pyramid, particularly with the, with the Super League. So that was the sort of backdrop. I mean, you mentioned Richard Masters, the chief executive of the Premier League going into Parliament. What in a classic sort of British farce way, it was almost Monty Python, an Everton fan, very well connected Everton fan called Julie, who is on the board, she's the secretary of the Everton uh, football fan advisory board, basically just tries to knock some sense into, into clubs and sort of stand up for, for fans' rights and concerns. She got into Parliament early, legitimately, because you can obviously hear these things, I'm sure it's the, the, the same over with you, and uh, she made sure that she was sitting right behind him and then she sort of took her jumper off and then she had a sort of Everton shirt on or t-shirt on underneath. So all the Everton fans, well, fans of all clubs were sort of tuning in to see sort of Richard Masters in his suit trying to defend uh, issues which the Premier League, you know, hope they, you know, as they try to. And behind him was just this reminder. It was almost like the sort of the, the old days of Caesar. There was someone behind him just reminding him, by the way, the game is about fans. The game is about institutions like Everton, founder members of the Football League, whatever, 150 years ago, founder members of the Premier League. You can come in with these rules, but you also have to remember that the people who will be punished and will suffer most are the fans. Yes, Richard, you are but a mortal man. Um, so on the City um, story itself, so talk to me about how Masters can... Uh, announce a hearing date has been set and and not tell uh the the general public i mean why are, are, are we not allowed to know this date if it's if it's been set um and and i know derek's going to elaborate on this with the, the everton forest charges the contradiction between having to deal with the 10 point appeal and then the additional charges and have that all done in a hurry before the end of this season meanwhile we're still dealing with uh with city charges which are, are nine years old the city charges are very complex, and I think the you know the mistake the Premier League made was just to try and do 115 of them, because every case, you know, quite rightly, has to be sort of defended, evidence gathered, evidence then presented. So clearly, it take a lot of time, and City are not short of money, and they've got the best lawyers involved in this, and it is in their interest to delay it. I think it's actually it's rather unfortunate for their supporters because because there is an asterisk against a lot of their achievements. Now, if they, you know, they completely deny all the uh, the 115 allegations of financial breaches, and if they are absolutely cleared and exonerated as they expect to be, then you can celebrate this amazing team of Pep Guardiola's even more. I mean, I, you know, I cover all their sort of their big moments, their sort of Champions League wins, their Premier League wins, their, um, was out in Saudi before Christmas for their, their win in the Club World Cup. And you absolutely celebrate the genius of Pep Guardiola. And we must 
we have to remember that this is a sport as well as an industry. At the genius of Pep Guardioli, the ability of Rodri, for me, one of the best players in the world, you know, the sort of the, the goals of Haaland, the elegance and the passing, the precision of Kevin De Bruyne, the energy of a player like Jeremy Doku sort of coming in, you know, all the all these players. And and yet there is always, it's almost like in the second paragraph of any piece you write about there, he said, by the way, they are still being investigated. They, they deny all the charges. So it would have been quite nice if Richard Masters at least named which year the, uh, the the sort of the investigation was going to be properly concluded. But look, we're expecting later this year. And again, Everton fans are saying, well, why are we being sort of treated so quickly? Forest fans, why are we being treated so quickly? And it's partly because the rules have changed. And again, the rules, all 20 clubs signed up for them. So, you know, that, you know, they're not completely sort of, they can't be naive on that. But it is the whole city thing hanging over it. And also it's compounding and comes back to the uh, the European Super League. The European Super League plotters who threaten to destroy not only the Premier League, but the whole pyramid and structure of English football, the dreams of millions, they just got a slap on the wrist and a small fine and Everton are getting points deductions. Everton, I mean, you, you know what the charges are. You know that Everton are basically 19 million pounds. What's that sort of 30 odd million Australian dollars over their permitted losses? which in the grand scheme of things, which an agent can make off a super deal, is not the sort of biggest crime in the world, particularly when you then break it down to what has it been. You know, if they'd sold a player early, which is Nottingham Forest's argument um, with Brennan Johnson to Tottenham, they could have sold him to, to Brentford and used that money before the sort of deadline. And then they would have kept in with profit and sustainability rules, FFP. My real frustration with the Everton case is that they're trying to build an amazing stadium in a fairly derelict part of Merseyside. And the new stadium is absolutely magnificent. And it's going to bring, what, a thousand jobs to the local community. It's going to bring tourists in. It's being used for the, the European Championships because it's such an impressive stadium. And yet they weren't allowed to include the increases in interest rates into their um, PSR um, calculations. So there's a problem with the process. There's a problem with the transparency. There's a problem with basically suits against fans, which is a sort of a broader thing. So yeah, you've wandered into a very complex English mess. And with uh, Everton, Henry, they're also subject to uh, some kind of takeover deal as well. And, and they've been slapped with this second round of sort of, le of um, legal wrangling that they have to do. I mean, when you look into 777, I don't want to libel or do anything, but it seems to be some interesting ways that they've built their own business and where the money comes from. But does this does this um, scupper or uh, scupper that deal at all, affect that deal? And looking at it, do Everton, you know, want to do that deal? Because it's almost, you know, compounding a big issue that they already have. Everton almost have to do that deal. 777 have put money in already. They, they've been, you know, their partners have been coming to matches recently. I mean, whatever you think of them, whatever your concerns about them, and they are going through the owners and directors tests at the Premier League at the moment. I mean, Everton are going to be in serious trouble with without them um, because of what's happened to Farhad Mashiri, the owner, in terms of his financial revenue. He says that the money for the stadium is is ring fenced, which is which is so important for Everton's long term future. But yeah, so seven seven seven, you know, they have had issues with the other clubs that they've been at. 
they say that has been a cash flow issue, but they have invested already heavily into uh, into Everton, and it's I mean it's just going to be Armageddon if they if they are turned down or the the owners and directors test, which absolutely has to be applied strictly and strongly um, if if they fail that. So yeah, that's another uh, concern down the road for Everton fans. And you touched on Nottingham Forest before and the, the vagaries of how the financial years that accounted for this process are out of whack with the transfer windows and timing of signings, etc. They'll also maybe argue too that it's unfair that, you know, they only had to lose sixty five million to cross that threshold, whereas Everton had to lose hundred and five million. Did did is there any any optimism from from a Nottingham Forest point of view that they might be able to um, wiggle off the hook or, um, you know, the very fact that, you know, we all saw them buy 31 players that summer before last and you've just got to go, look, guys, you knew the rules. You went on a mad shopping spree, Dash, and uh, you're now going to see the consequences of that. Yeah, it was a trolley dash, but they had to in a way because they had so many players that they were losing 20 players, either sold or going back from loans. So there was an issue. But ever since um, Maranakis, the, uh, the the Greek shipping billionaire, has come in, uh, was I think it was about sort of 2017, 2018, there have been 130 players come in, either on permanent signings or on loans. It's been a crazy turnover. And what Steve Cooper did to A, get them up and then keep them up was just a miracle of modern management. Now he has gone, um, Nuno Spiritu Santo is in and they've got a fight on their hands. I mean, you know, they do have one or two good players, but, you know, they had to sell Brennan Johnson. There is a fighting spirit there, but if it depends how much of a, I mean, you know, you look, you look at their spending, spending and they were really going to struggle just to keep within PSR but the Brennan Johnson deal if he'd gone to Brentford for 30 rather than Spurs for whatever he went for was for 50 odd uh they would have but you completely hit the nail on the head with the it was the timing of it and they have to make these PSR calculations transfer window to transfer window transfer deadline to transfer deadline because if you do it sort of under sort of traditional accounting it, it just doesn't take into account the fact that clubs managers players agents play brinkmanship on the last day of the the transfer window and they often get better deals then so yeah a little bit of sympathy i've got more sympathy for for everton than i do for um for, for forest because forest at the time everyone could see the spending and see this cannot they cannot be meeting psr uh figures obviously they had to sort of completely refresh their squad but it's going to be difficult. And you it's going to be interesting to see what deduction they get. If they get a 10-point deduction, Forrest will find it difficult to stay up. If Everton, who've already been deducted 10 points this season and have managed because of brilliant management, Sean Dyche, the fighting spirit, you know what Goodison's like when Gladys Street is absolutely enraged with the rest of the country, enraged with the powers that be. And they often blur sort of Westminster and Parliament and the Premier League as well. I think that the establishments are out to get us. There's a real fighting spirit at Everton. I think if they maybe have their uh, original uh, deduction of 10 points reduced and then they get a second uh, deduction, I still think Everton have got that fighting spirit and they've got enough good players like Calvert Lewin when he's fit and others to, to stay up. So, yeah, it's going to be... It, it's sad that what is being one of the most exciting Premier League seasons in terms of the quality of the football, in terms of the narrative, particularly at the top, in terms of we've got a proper title race on our hands, Manchester City, Liverpool and Arsenal. 
particularly the first two, um, that so much of it, it, it would just be such a sad season if the season wasn't decided on the last day of the season, but was decided later on in the year in a courtroom. That's not what sport's about. Well, one team that would have liked to have been in your rundown of the title contenders would be Newcastle United. And we've been picking holes in the way that the Premier League has been conducting itself throughout this conversation. But one thing that this FFP or whatever you want to call it seems to have done is it it has reined in and stopped, I suppose, to stop another Manchester City, this, this, this um, sort of nation state or very large ownership takeover pumping hundreds of millions of pounds very quickly into a club and rising very quickly because by all accounts city uh newcastle sorry are right on the edge uh by in terms of you know and, and uh, you know a squad that's been absolutely ravaged by injury and and players that have been unavailable this season but they are, are, are almost saying that they can't they can't they've got all the riches in the bank but they can't spend it um you know so to a degree despite all the, the vagaries and the problems, is this working because it is stopping this this process of teams being bought up and ele- being elevated quickly through money? Well, you're saying it's stopping, but actually if you look at what's happened to Newcastle United over the last two, three years in terms of the improvement of the squad, the improvement of infrastructure, this is post-Ashley going into the new Saudi owners. Look, I'm not a fan of state-nation investment. I would rather it was the local you know, shop owner, but we don't live in a, you know, a high street world anymore. It's the sort of, you know, it's the super highway of of global billionaires and nation states. Um, That horse has bolted. We're never going to get sort of, you know, the germ of 50 plus one sort of fan ownership element. Um, So look, that's, that's happened. But actually, if you look at the investment into Abu Dhabi's investment into Manchester City and into the area, they've been pretty impressive owners in terms of what they've done obviously there's the asterisk over the 115 charges which, which is huge but they've revitalized a pretty rundown part of east manchester in terms of there's a new school there amazing training facilities the women's team um attracting good crowds the uh, the stadium obviously the stadium is being expanded so they've been good owners there. And then with the Saudis, even though I'm not a fan and you know very simple thing i don't really like journalists being hacked up with bone sores um many issues moral rights um i and i went out to, to stand before christmas i was saying and all people wanted to do was just to sort of ask about the moralizing of the western media and they said well look you have got issues here with sort of workers rights with um morality moral rights in terms of the, the, the gay community you saw that jordan henderson that the stick he got for going out there and the hypocrisy involved with with him so but you actually look at what the saudis have done in terms of their investment in newcastle in terms of the buzz around st james's park is absolutely huge now coming back to your specific point about the finance you know they have bought in good players their biggest problem this year has been sandro tonali in terms of getting a player of that quality in for that size of fee, whatever it was, 50 million, and then for the wages they're paying, and they haven't been able to, to play him. And now the suggestion is they might sell Bruno Grimarish. Kieran Trippier, they might generate some money for if he goes to Bayern Munich, but they would be crazy to let someone of his calibre go. So maybe there's a little bit of sort of scaremongering on their part. But as you say, they are very close to uh, to the sort of the PSR limit. 
But that is why they have brought in people like Darren Eels, who's the chief executive of uh, at Atlanta, and he's come in and he's brilliant. Former player, knows the game, fantastic appointment as chief executive. They got Dan Ashworth in, who's who Manchester United would love to take to be their director of football. They've appointed Eddie Howe. So they have invested um, substantially. And now they've just got this difficult juggling period while they try to generate the sort of commercial revenue, which will allow them to buy more. So PSR makes sense. I mean, without getting all Dickensian about it, it's the old Macorber thing of, you know, you, if you spend, you know, if your income is one pound and you, you spend a shilling less, it's happiness. If your income is one pound and you spend, you can see how much inflation has been since Dickens time. If you're, if you're, if you uh, spend a, uh, your income's a pound and, uh, and then you spend a pound and a shilling, result misery. And those simple economics are being applied to this. Um, and I think it's good because it gives everyone a chance because otherwise uh, the Saudis at Newcastle would come and say, right, we'll have Neymar, we'll have Messi, and it would have skewed it. So I quite like the organic approach of PSR to building a team and a club. And the irony is not lost on us that the Tenali suspension, because of gambling, um, is um, the literal form of gambling as opposed to the gamble of the Saudi state uh, on on, uh, on a club that, um, as uh, as Derek said, <laughs> have got all the money in the world, but as uh, um, water, water everywhere. I think um, Richard the Third, but it's not a dollar to drink or spend uh, to mix all of my metaphors and put them in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, um, look, thanks for coming on, mate. We really appreciate Pleasure. having a chat to you. And uh, um, in uh, a country where um, we're going through a, a real challenging period uh, with the domestic league as well as the Matildas and Socceroos on the international stage, uh, uh, the, the lack of money uh, with the competition of, of the other domestic sports like rugby league and AFL uh, in particular uh, um, are... Uh, uh, to, to have someone like you to come on to our show for our domestic listeners to listen to when we're getting less and less coverage uh, locally of the game uh, is something that uh, uh, means a lot. But also that's a problem with FIFA. I think if FIFA had been a little bit more enlightened and realised that Australia would be the perfect place to have a World Cup, as you showed with the, the Women's World Cup, you know, in tandem with New Zealand, could you imagine what that have done for your local league? Uh, Sorry, local league or national league? Yeah, no, no, hundred percent. It um, it, well, we've seen, you know, that not a pretty low bar that they've come from, but the the women's um, A League women's competition crowds have doubled already, and uh, um, and uh, the the ripple effect of that women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand has, has been huge. So, and it's also the final thing is it's blown away the argument of broadcast times, which was always sort of FIFA's little thing said, oh well, we won't get the European audience. Yeah. That's nonsense. I mean, everyone everyone watched those, you know, the Lionesses games. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. And as you know, from the other side of the, the world, we it, it's become a thing. We've, we've all of our lives, we've gotten up at weird and wonderful hours to watch uh, whether yeah. it was, uh, you know, Pat Cash winning Wimbledon in 1987 or the, the Socceroos doing well in, in 2006 in the in the in the World Cup in Germany. Uh, it's uh, it's a history. The Ashes, of course, over many years, um, we could we could go on. Henry. Stay well, my friend. Um, thank you again, and uh, until next time, it probably uh, will. Uh, uh, there was, there's always another story, isn't there? Absolutely, we've got the Euros in the summer. England, it's coming home. <laughs> we hope. Anyway, nice to talk to you guys. And yeah, Henry went from the Times. Okay, yeah. stick around. World Cup corner. He's next on Box to Box. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt spices. Yeah. 
We love flavour in our meals, and I talk about spices and spice rubs and, uh, and different dishes with lots of spices and herbs, but instead of your full-blown meal this week, I love to add flavour to my breakfast and lunch from time to time. Do you guys get a bit inventive with your breakfast and lunch at times, or uh, is it just yeah. dinner time? Yeah. No, no, I often see my, uh, my either boiled or sort of lightly fried eggs in the morning as just uh, canvas to just go absolutely nuts with the spices, Rob. Yeah, and, um, and do, you, do you like to, to get into the spices and the herbs um, for, for a breakfast or, or, or lunch, Derek? Do you like a bagel? Oh, you see a lot of bagels when I lived in London, go down to East London and have some salt beef or something like that, but probably don't, don't get as many bagels as I used to, Rob. What can I do if I did buy a bagel? No, well, absolutely. Well, if, if you want to make one at home, and, and because you can get them, you know, at most good bakers and supermarkets and stuff like that but there's a there's a real thing these days for expensive spice mix with uh with expensive brands and you pay you know three four five times what you need to but if you go to hoyts and you go to the uh spice aisle in your in your hoyts uh, uh or your coles or your Woolworths, your good independent supermarket get a mixture of this okay so get, grab your pen sesame seeds poppy seeds some garlic and onion powder and sea salt and a little cracked pepper. Mix it all up, perfect seasoning on your bagel with smoked salmon, chicken, eggs, all sorts of things. So if you want to just spice up your lunch on your bagel, um, then, then make that mix and you will not be disappointed. So refill your empty spice jars with those uh, suggestions with the Hoyts value packs. You'll be happy with Hoyts at Coles Woolworths and all the good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyts spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. Great chatting with Henry Winter from The Times, of course, there. Um, so we've covered the Asian Cup earlier with uh, with Joey Lynch and... Um, you know, not that it's uh, World Cup corner content as such, but um, AFCON uh, does definitely sort of fit in that realm of, uh, of international competition, Willem. And uh, it's been a great tournament, unless, of course, you're a Liverpool fan. Uh, I think Mo Salah travelling home as we speak to, to uh, uh, continue his rehab. I'm not sure whether we'll even see him back there for the rest of the tournament. Yes, uh, he... Yeah, there was an interesting chat on the uh, the Guardian this week. They had two African football journalists uh, on Rob, and they sort of picked through the history of um, Premier League or big European sides sending physios to Afcon with the you know the, the prized um, you know the, the, the crown jewels. And Mo Salah unfortunately has picked up a hamstring injury. He's going to miss uh, at least their final group game against Cape Verde, and then uh, the round of sixteen. But yeah, you just never know what the messaging is and how sort of legitimate. Uh, that is, but yeah, he does travel back to uh, to Liverpool. Um, that was a two-all draw with Ghana. So this group, Derek, really doesn't look as uh, might have been expected as we head into the, the third match day. And just by the by, this tournament really is starting to come to the boil. Four of the six groups still need to be um, still need to be decided in terms of top spot, let alone uh, second. So uh, yeah, not bad at all. Um, but. Yeah, Cape Verde through with six points and then um, Egypt and Ghana might on, on two apiece and Mozambique, who have never won a game at AFCON, are still in with a chance should they beat Ghana on uh, on Tuesday morning. Yeah, that you know, Cape Verde are certainly the ones that put the cat amongst the pigeons and or the blue shark amongst the uh, the pigeons because uh, that's their nickname. But I will be talking about them in, in stoppage time and a former Manchester United starlet uh, who, who is now appearing for them but yeah like i'm sure 
Garner and Egypt didn't think that they would be duking it out um, like this. I suppose, Willem, the format with the three best losers of or the, the three best third place will, will help some of these teams in the final round of games that may need to squeak uh, through into the next phase. But, yeah, I mean, looking, looking across the board, whether it's uh, Equatorial uh, Guinea, uh, Burkina Faso against, uh, you know, Algeria, um, even earlier in the tournament, Namibia beating Tunisia was a, a bit of a, a shock result. So we, we spoke about the the gulf in class closing between the big sort of Maghreb North, North African teams and the sort of uh, powerhouses from um, West West Africa in particular. But yeah, there's a, it's a pretty even tournament so far. Well, I think the big shock though is um, is the home side. I mean, they, they they might skate through on the the third place rule, given that they've got a win, um, but they, they could still go out and um, they they need to, to at the very least get a result against um, Equatorial Guinea of all countries um, in their final group match. Well, yeah, um, they, they most certainly do. They were the uh, Le Cote d'Ivoire, one of Rob Stevens's big four. Um, the the one of his big four that sort of have been able to sort of stay sort of clean and tidy to this point. Uh, the holders, Senegal, and we know what a what an albatross that's been to be the holders. I don't think um, anyone since Egypt in two thousand and six, so eight odd tournaments ago, have been able to to back up and, and keep their hands on the trophy. But they are through to the last sixteen. They had a three on win over Cameroon, and I must say. The broadcast for this game and the kits that they wore, Derek. I'm not sure if you saw it, but you had to know the players. Um, you had to know, oh, of course, you know we would. But if you were just a, an observer, it took me ten minutes to work out, sort of glancing at it from a distance, which side was which, because the the sort of the broadcast mock up and the kits, you just had absolutely no idea between <laughs> uh, between Cameroon and and Senegal. But Senegal did get through three one. Uh, Sadio Mane's goal at the death sealing that one, but that was sitting at two one and sort of on the precipice pretty much the whole way through. And um, some concerning news that again has you know all turned out okay, hopefully. But Aliou Sissé, their uh, their manager, uh, one of the most recognisable and much uh, much loved figures of African football, was taken to hospital ill post game, but he is back with the group and apparently uh, in uh, in good health. Derek. Yeah, I remember Aliou Sissé. So yeah, obviously um, when any anyone's a uh... Afflicted by anything in our football world, we um, we send we send them the best. So uh, get well, Aliou. Uh, I'm just about ready to uh, to close out, Rob. If you had if you had anything else to add, no, no. Other than that, I think uh, it's a nice little recap, mate. Um, there's uh, plenty more to talk about with uh, Afcon next week. Once we uh, we know what the knockout stages look like, um, they they kick off um, next Sunday. So we'll have been able to recap on on the first. Uh, a couple of matches uh, and uh, in fact um, by Monday morning there'll be four matches have been played out so when we when we regroup we'll uh, we'll know who's uh, or at least a few of the teams that are advancing to the quarterfinals so we'll uh, we'll give us uh, our listeners a, uh, a more in-depth uh, summary of, of AFCON uh, next week so uh, well good to uh, see you mate we'll talk to you a little later in the week for uh, for stoppage time yes look forward to it good luck Socceroos in between those times and to you Derek thank you mate all the best, chance. And Adam Maloney ticking the days, counting the days down. Uh, I think by this time next week, you'll have another addition uh, to his uh, beautiful little family, little boy uh, coming on the way. So, Adam, uh, 
Good luck with that, mate. We'll talk to you at stoppage time, but um, but thanks again for all of your excellent work on the show. To our listeners, please subscribe to Box to Box Stoppage Time and Offside. We know um, that uh, since the demise of Keep Up, there is a dearth. So if, if you want to reach out to us and, and there's content that you're missing on Keep Up uh, that you want covered, just uh, drop us a, a tweet uh, on X and uh, and we'll be watching that closely. Uh, that is, of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, tweet us, as I say, whenever you like at Box to Box NTS and follow us on X, like us on Facebook and join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.